0: You're listening to In The Company, a podcast about humanising work and designing better working lives. Each episode is curated to provoke you to think more deeply about the things that matter in your career and life, and to build your toolkit for how to thrive as a human in business today. We explore how we work from the inside out. I'm Kylie Lewis, and it's great to be in your company. Welcome. Today, we're in the company of Ali Watson, co-founder of Code Like a Girl. With a degree in computer science, Ali has for the last seven years built websites and apps and four years ago moved from her homeland of Airlie, Scotland, leaving behind her established professional networks to start over. It was in this transition she acutely felt the anxiety of not only being a newcomer, but also often being the only woman in her team or at an industry networking event. This spurred her to create her own tech events for girls and to create a social enterprise to close the gender gap in a male-dominated industry. In this episode, we talk about knowing when to pivot, making a side gig, a full-time gig, going from an employee to a manager, and why it's important to have more women and girls in tech. Welcome Ali. Thanks, Kaylee. It's lovely to be on the show. Fantastic. We're excited to have you to spend some time talking with us about a fantastic organization that you started called Code Like a Girl. But before we jump into that, I wanted to find out a little bit more about who you were as a girl, as a young girl, and some of the things that you <laughs> liked doing that might have had
1: an impact on what you do today. So I guess as a child, um, I was actually really creative. Um, I was obsessed with, I don't know if you had it here in Australia, but Art Attack, the program Art Attack. Did you ever have that? This UK guy, Neil Buchanan, hosted it. It was on Children's TV. He had books. He had sort of activity exercise books you could get and I was obsessed with it and it was all about these little mini projects you would make. I loved just like, I loved art and design, I loved uh, sculptors, I loved sewing, like every Halloween I was always helping my friends, like I was painting their faces and helping them with their costumes my costumes were always a bit like lo-fi <laughs> not much effort because I was always just spending the whole night just helping everybody else because that's just what I love doing so I was always really yeah I was, I was a real creative kid I would say spent a lot of my lunch hours in the art department that was uh, yeah that was definitely Ali in our younger days and how does that show up in what you do today I don't think I've ever left my creative side. Uh, I use it now as more sort of an outlet to sort of get away from work. I make a lot of things at home. I make a lot of little sculpture things at home. Um, In terms of how I use that in my day-to-day, it did influence where I worked. So when I worked as a web developer, I purposely worked for creative agencies. I loved being part of creative projects. And whilst I was the technical person on the team, even being part of the process, it felt rewarding, it felt satisfying, it really ticked that box for me. Now that I'm in a company, I get to be more creative actually in my job. Before I was usually I was just the sort of technical side of things, but now I get to do, you know, I, I put all my design effort in the decks that we create, in the slides, into, you know, one page that we're creating for new services and into and the websites. So I still get to really use that creative side, which is, um, yeah, again, just really rewarding. And I love it. Yeah, can't, I can't stop. <laughs> but I also think technology is quite like inherently creative. I see it as almost like a tool. Like it's a paintbrush in a way of like modern society where you can create what you want with code and you can create these products. And it's, it's just a tool. But then even on a sort of lower level to that, the actual craft of coding writing programs it's quite creative once you sort of are fluent in a language you can write it really well you can structure it and organize it and design it really well it's all about like readability and giving it to someone else who can have a look at that code and it just reads like a letter and that's that's what differentiates like a good programmer to not so good programmer is if you can read a piece of code and it can just read like english and you've used meaningful names and you've structured it and organized it well and it's almost like a piece of art itself so I think, like, there is so much creativity—not just in you know the products that you, you create, but really down low level to the actual crafting of the code. So yeah, lots of creativity there.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I really do think that we, um, in our jobs, we are actually creative beings if we allow ourselves to see problem solving is a creative act, and absolutely. you know, starting something new is a creative act that requires yes. joining dots in a way that have not been joined before, and that's really what creativity
1: is. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think even at the core of, if people ask me, you know, what coding is, it's problem solving. Every single thing that you try and create is just a problem that can be almost uh, put into bite-sized little problems and you just tackle each one at a time and then suddenly before you know it, you have this complex system that you've designed from being a big, big problem to tiny, tiny little ones. And so, yeah, there's there's so much creativity in problem solving.
0: Now, am I right in thinking that Computer programming wasn't your first area of study.
1: It wasn't, no. So um, I actually, as soon as I finished high school, I did art and design. So um, I did a portfolio course to try and get into art school, and um, you know, did photography classes, did sculpture classes, life drawing classes, you name it, and put together this portfolio so that I could apply to art school and I just didn't get in Kylie I got rejected from not just one art school but every art school in the country it wasn't (laughs) meant to be it wasn't meant to be but I didn't give up straight away I did it again the next year worked on my portfolio for a full year and um applied again and no I didn't get in and it was at that moment where I just felt so embarrassed and such a failure you know I'd got really great grades at school. I actually, my whole family were so proud of me because I'd got the best grades in the whole entire family history. And I didn't want to do anything academic with it. I wanted to go to art school. um, But it just wasn't going to work out. And I had this moment where I was forced to just pivot because you have, you know, all your peers are going to university or they're. got jobs or everyone's kind of sorting out their life and there's you stuck stuck in this place where you're not even sure who you are or who you're going to be because that plan that you had isn't happening anymore you know it's not it's not going to work and so there was about two months before the semester was starting at university and I looked at the Glasgow University which was the university that my dad had went to and it was a really prestigious university and they had left And it was just a few. There was a really short list of spaces that were left over. And there I saw computer science and software engineering. It was like a dual degree. And I thought to myself, you know, I was good at maths. And I did information systems at school. And I was pretty good at that too. And I do like problem solving. And I'm very good at designing art. So maybe there's something there. Maybe I can design software. Maybe that'll be for me. And the great thing about Scotland is education is free in Scotland. So it wasn't a huge gamble for me to just try it. And I had never done programming before. And so I signed up to the course. I walked into that computer science class. And day one, I thought, what have I done? Like, what did I do? <laughs> I was just, I was surrounded by guys. Everyone knew what they were doing. Everybody, like, It felt like everybody was supposed to be there. And here was me, a fish out of water, had no idea what they were talking about. The curriculum and the content was really above my head. I just had came from a world that wasn't very technology-based. I hadn't a lot of experience already. It seemed like everybody was there because they already had experience in that field. And so for me, the learning curve was really steep. And on top of that, I did feel really like an outsider. You know, I was ashamed that I didn't know a lot. I felt embarrassed that I didn't know a lot. But after time and after really hard work, things started to click. Um, I really started to find my place within the course we started doing things like human computer interaction classes and this was like all about psychology all about the design of software and I was like I know this I know people I'm good at design and so I finally found places where I could apply my strengths and other people in the class they didn't really get these subjects very well so that's when I knew that you know what I've got something different to bring to the table I might not be the one that's going to come up with the complex algorithm that's going to you know change the world but I see things differently and I can design things differently and I was able to balance out all my different subjects based on my strength and I managed to graduate which was wonderful and yeah, I I loved my time at university because it was such, I guess when you're in those uncomfortable situations for such a long time, the growth, the personal growth and the professional growth that you feel because you're just pushing yourself beyond the limits you thought you had. You're in situations where you feel like giving up or you feel like you can't do it and then you do it and that's just such an amazing feeling to be able to complete that degree when I know how I felt on day one is just it still feels like an achievement to this day um so yeah I had quite an experience to be honest Um, and I don't regret it and I'm actually glad that art school didn't work out because I found such a passion and place within the technology industry and I love it now just thrive off of it so it kind of all works out I guess in the end and it's an incredible story. And what I'm interested in is one
0: of the questions that we ask all our guests is three things that they believe in and why. And I would love to hear what you have to say, knowing the background to your story now.
1: <laughs> um, one of them is, <laughs> I thought about these in advance and I was like, one of them is I believe that teamwork makes the dream work. So at Kodak it's never I think a lot of people you know you know that I started it, but it could never be what it is today without the team. And then also the seven years I spent in the industry working very collaboratively on projects, I think really cemented how important teamwork is and just how important a diverse team is, like having these people from different industries and skills coming together to create this amazing product. I believe in four day weeks, so that was another thing. I think I've really gotten to know myself um, really well and how I work at my best. And I think when you're well-rested and well-fed and you're in a really good place energy-wise, you can achieve double the work in half the time. And so one of the things that when I started the own, my own business was to really aim for 40 weeks. Um, and then this one is a bit more relatable to my own experience, but I believe that everyone, no matter of what background they come from, should have access to technology, education, education, For me, I grew up in this really small town in Airdrie. We didn't have a lot growing up. Um, My mum was a single mum and we were quite a big family of four. And so for me, technology, education and getting my computer science degree allowed me a lifestyle and life and career that I didn't actually think I was going to get when I was younger. I think when you grow up in these kind of small towns, you always feel like you're prepared for failure more than you're prepared for success The kind of things that, you know, you you don't get a lot of encouragement and there's not a lot of exposure to different careers or different places that you can live and have a life. And a lot of people I know and grew up with, they didn't ever kind of leave that small town. Whereas my education and technology, it just gave me wings. It gave me financial freedom. It gave me opportunities and it gave me like an opportunity to live in Australia, which was huge for me. I mean, Australia is like, I don't know, it's funny, I my partner's Australian I always tell him this I'm like you know Australia is like the ultimate success for people from Scotland (laughs) it's like you go over to this amazing warm country and there's so much opportunity here and having that freedom because of my skill set has allowed me to live in this country and I actually could have lived anywhere in the world because there is such a shortage of technologists and it's quite um, it's never easy to get a visa but there's access that technologists can get into different countries and, and access to different visas and so I think that if everybody has the opportunity to be exposed to coding exposed to these amazing careers and opportunities, that would be an amazing gift to give someone from a disadvantaged background to give them that sort of empowerment to do what they want with their life and to have those opportunities at their at their feet so you mentioned about where you grew
0: up and the kind of feelings of potentially being trapped there or not being able to get out of that situation. So what what do you think was different about you in seeing the world differently or the tenacity to keep going when you got knocked back out of art school? How do you think you were different in that way or was able to
1: see beyond that? I think it was my mum, to be honest. she She's one of my role models for life, but in particular when things were tough at university, I thought back to... My mum. So, my parents separated when I was four. And when we were around about seven, my mum, we had to give up the family home, couldn't afford to live there anymore. And we almost faced homelessness, but luckily we were placed in a council flat, and that's where we spent most of our childhood. And my mum realised at that point, you know, enough was enough. I can't go on living like this. She didn't have skills or a career at that point in her life. Um, and so she went back to university when we were all quite young so she had four girls like <laughs> I was the youngest and we all sort of went up in two years so you know it's it's extremely challenging having to go study having to also work having to look after these um, four girls who were crazy teenagers <laughs> we did not give her a good time and she did all that and she conquered it and she ended up working in nursing and um, eventually working her way up to management in nursing and I think that is so inspiring to me that someone who, you know, when she, you're back against the wall, kind of comes back fighting and she's always been like that. And so she, when we were younger as well, she spent some time abroad in Cyprus and she always talked about this time in Cyprus, like continuously. She only spent three years there, but she always talked about it and it was always these glamorous stories and this and that. And it must have been important to her. It must have been a real time of her life because it just kept on coming back. And it was really inspiring to me to hear, you know, stories of when she lived in these places. And I kind of thought, I don't have a story for my children. I haven't done anything with my life. And I was 25 and I was working still in Scotland. And I thought, what am I going to tell my children that's going to inspire them? I haven't really done anything yet. And so I wanted a story. And that's where, that's where I decided to move to Australia because I hadn't done anything yet. And it was only supposed to be a year I came over here only supposed to be a working holiday and, you know, travel around and see the world and come back home. But that's not how it worked out. (laughs) (laughs) It's not how
0: it worked out, is it? So you ended up working here, but you've also started a business here. You've co-founded a business with Vanessa Doe called Code Like a Girl.
1: How did that come about? I guess I'll start with how I met Vanessa. So I worked my first job here in Australia My project manager was Vanessa's husband and we got on really well. We became really good friends and I'd only been here probably about four months and he invited me home to dinner to meet Vanessa and meet some of his friends, which was really nice because I didn't know anybody and it's really hard to kind of make friends and stuff, especially when you're an adult. Making friends is really hard when you're an adult. And so it was really kind of them to invite me around. And me and Vanessa just got on really well. Um, Me, Hamish and Vanessa became, you know, best friends Vanessa was always very entrepreneurial and she worked in the not-for-profit space and she was really strong in terms of, like, the way she wanted um, to work with... uh, She worked for a a women's legal services that really did a lot of work around women sort of experiencing violence. And I found that really inspiring and really heartbreaking, some of the stories. And there was a lot of, like, commonalities about me and Vanessa in terms of how entrepreneurial we both were, were always coming up with new business ideas, like... (laughs) on road trips like oh this is a good business idea but never really acted on it and when we started well when I started Cold Lake Girl it wasn't really intended to be a business it was just a passion project I'd never even really knew that much about you know creating a business or social entrepreneurship hadn't been exposed to much of that in my career but when Cold Lake Girl started it was just supposed to be an event I was still trying to make friends in Melbourne and particularly as a woman in a technical role you don't meet a lot of women in your your work I was always the only girl on the team the two places I've worked here in Melbourne it was it was only girl on the tech team and I wanted to meet other girls who did what I did who were like-minded like me in terms of could worked in technology and so I planned this evening and it was supposed to only be like a small intimate evening where we're going to get a few bottles of wine in we're going to talk about our projects and and talk about what languages we knew and, and share some of our stories and experiences But it wasn't like that at all. The first event just blew up. You know, we had like 100 RSVPs within two weeks. It was insane. And we decided that night, you know, this is important and this is needed. Like these women in this room need each other and I need them. Let's make this regular. Let's commit. And so we did it every two months and it just grew and grew and grew. And so here was me sitting day to day, being a developer, five days a week. But the website was getting so much inquiries, people were just reaching out and saying, you should do this, we should do this together, let's collaborate. And it just got really overwhelming. And so we decided after um, we were picked up by PwC and the Foundation for Young Australians, they were running this thing called an accelerator program. And I didn't know what an accelerator program was. And I went for the interview actually not knowing really what I was doing and what I was getting myself into. And they described the course and they said, you know, it's touch points of the year and we'll give you sort of one-on-one business classes and you'll see mentors and you'll get exposed to this new world. And I was like, great, this sounds brilliant. And it was at that point that things changed. It was at that point that I really saw the potential and called Like a Girl. I really met other like-minded businesses who had already been doing similar things for a really long time. I was able to understand what the next steps were. And so naturally I didn't want to do it alone. I knew my skill sets and I knew my strengths, but I also knew the gaps and I needed someone else who could fill those gaps. And it just felt like the perfect match. So I reached out to Vanessa. And I said, you know, do you want to be my co-founder? <laughs> and Vanessa was fully on board. She went, if I do this, I'm, I'm coming on fully, like this is happening. And it was such a game changer getting Vanessa on board. She's just, we're so different in terms of the skills that we bring. And it's it's just great. And I couldn't stress more about having that diversity in your leadership team. Just being able to sort of tag out and, and come together on things and just see it from different places as well has been really beneficial for the business and so yeah that's kind of like the story of us and the story of how it happened and we're now both full-time in the organization and we're trying to scale to a national size we're we're now in three states which is incredible amazing so what's the business model now for code like a girl so the business model is we call ourselves a social enterprise and so the idea is that we have six different services that we run within code like a girl and the idea is that they'll be self-funding, self-sustainable and that with the profits of Code Lythi Girl we get to do amazing projects so we have this one coming up and it's the traveling classroom for rebel girls and we're taking it to disadvantaged areas and it's um, this incredible space that we're having designed it's almost like a pop-up classroom but it challenges gender stereotypes it's really vibrant it's rebellious just like the kind of Code Lyhy Girl brand and we're going to do free coding workshops within sort of areas in West Melbourne so that's the, the idea of the model is that we can create self-sustaining services that make a small profit and with that profit we're able to then go out to disadvantaged areas and really provide what we've always wanted to do is access access to technology education to everybody so
0: (laughs) yeah so you you run coding programs for
1: girls and women yes so girls and women so we have workshops which are two to four hour one-off ad hoc workshops a lot of that range is introductory so we assume no knowledge of programming we speak no jargon we make sure everything's clear and everyone's sort of on that sort of same equal playing field as we come in and they're relaxed and we've always got lots of compliments about Code like our workshops and how everybody just feels like you know the presenters are very down to earth and it's it's your safe space to to ask questions and I think particularly with technology there is a level of intimidation with some people there is a thing that needs to be demystified and that's our job for the dates you know it's demystifying things that people have felt intimidated to ask what that does or why that does and and so that's our workshops and then we also do code camps which are a sort of more 3D immersive experience for young girls Um, and those are usually girls at school age level then we have internships, which is placing women into entry-level roles within the industry. And those internships, we just launched last month and we've already placed seven women into the industry, which is great. Um, and then we have a job service as well. So our job service is advertising jobs from companies who are really committed to gender equality. So we do a lot of screening for those companies and they advertise to our community so that's kind of what we do. It's all over the place. We have quite a few services going, um, but it works. And it's it's almost like we're tackling girls from all areas of the life cycle. So young girls all the way to the industry and adults who want to enter the industry. Um, so, yeah, it's, we've really been enjoying building it out and scaling it. This episode of In The Company is brought to you by Victoria's
0: Small Business Festival happening throughout Victoria during August 2018. The festival offers a wide range of practical, interactive and innovative events that cover topics such as business planning, marketing, social media, networking and financial management. All events are either low cost or free and are designed to help small business owners improve their productivity and business now while engaging with other like-minded businesses and industry experts. For more information, information visit festival.business.vic.gov.au. How long did it take you to go from it
1: being a side gig to being your full-time gig? So it was a side gig August 2016 is when we launched in Melbourne and then um, February 2017 is when we established as a business. So that was just about a year after it started and then Yeah, what is two 2018 now. So the company's kind of been running as a company for a year and a half, but as a passion project for about three years. So yeah, three years it started.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So how important was it for you to become a business owner?
1: I think I realised how important it was because the more I researched into the why. So at first I did it because I wanted to meet other like-minded women. That was my intention, it wasn't really too well thought out. But the more I looked into the problem of why there was not more girls and what we could do about that is the where I got really passionate about it. Because I started reflecting on how easily I could have chose art or something else. I started reflecting on all the girls who dropped out of my course or all the people who left the industry. And I thought, why is this happening? And I looked at the way I grew up and the gender stereotyping that I was exposed to and other girls are exposed to and how natural a fit it is for men and how they grow up with consoles. They grow up with games. They grow up learning problem solving and tinkering from a very young age. And then they have amazing role models to look up to who are everywhere. You know, you see Elon Musk on the front cover of Times Magazine or something. You see all these amazing men in technology who are just leading the way. And so for them, it's such a natural fit. Whereas women in particular, we are still facing strong messages from as young as, you know, six-year-old, from the toys we're given to the magazines that we read, to the movies, the influences and the TV, just everywhere. And I know that we're making great progress in the last few years. But when I look back in my upbringing, in my childhood, it was so easy for me not to end up in that path. And that annoyed me. That really bugged me. And so I knew that if I wanted to make the change that I wanted to make and at the scale that I wanted to make it at, I had to be a business and I had to be a good business and a successful business. If I really wanted the ammunition to make what I needed or what I wanted to happen, happen, that's the only way I could do about it. It couldn't stay as a passion project. It couldn't be something that only had my night or my weekend attention. It needed to be fully resourced. It needed to be someone focusing on this big time because it was that important. And um, so it felt like it didn't feel like a choice at that point for me. It felt like I had to do it.
0: So it's still pretty early days in terms of the, of the business. What have been the biggest lessons you've learned so far?
1: Oh, so many every days. Every day is a school day. <laughs> I think one of the most great lessons I actually got was about a year ago. I went to a female entrepreneur boot camp, and I was given this framework, which has came in really, really handy for a lot of things. So I have a lot of meetings that I have to go to and a lot of pitches that I have to do, and you almost feel like a salesperson, and that can be sometimes not a natural fit for me. So the framework that. it was was by a woman called Erica Bradshaw and she does a lot of public speaking and coaching. And the framework was why this, why me, why you, why now? So why this is kind of just explaining, you know, why is this important? Why me is like, well, why should you listen to me? What expertise do I have? What experience do I have on this problem? And why you, and this part's really important is why are you talking to this person? Why should they care? And so, Oh, and then why now? Why now is like, you know, a lot of the time you'll get, this is really interesting, but not yet. We're not there yet. So they sort of pan you off. Whereas why now is there needs to be urgency about your ask. Um, so this framework, you can use it in networking situations. You can use it in when you're meeting someone for the first time. And it just allows you to kind of prep in advance of why this meeting is happening and what is the reason you're meeting with this person and why should you bring value to that meeting to make it worthwhile both your time and I find it really amazing framework and it's just really helped with me in terms of if I'm putting together a proposal or I'm meeting someone for the first time who I, I want i want their help on something and I can really address like, okay, well, why Why should they be bothered about this? And it gives it a really personal experience and it just takes away that idea of you trying to sell it to them. But actually you're really thinking it out properly um, and you feel really prepared going into it. So for me, that was one of the most valuable things anyone's ever said to me in terms of like how I go about now just my day-to-day business. So yeah, I'd probably say that's a real standout one.
0: Yeah, that's genius. It's, it's, yeah, it's that's genius. a bit of gold right there, isn't it? And I can think of so many different instances of where just those four questions could be applied, not even in necessarily in sales, but even just in, in writing content or in any kind of situation where you're talking about your business and, and why you're doing it. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And so there's always difficult situations that arrive in business. What have been some of the sticky ones for you?
1: I think the most difficult thing for me in business is usually the people. You know, I think that there's been a lot of difficult conversations you have to have. There's just no avoiding it. And as someone who I've never been actually in a management position before, this is my first one. And so I didn't have, like, that training. I'd never had to fire anyone. I've never had to – I've actually never hired anyone. (laughs) I was never senior enough in any of my roles previous to be in those positions. And so now you're currently that person who has to hire and fire and delegate. And it's been difficult because at the very start, I very naively went into it. I really had a lot of optimism and I'd work with people and I wouldn't really give them very clear deadlines I wouldn't really give them clear boundaries or expectations and so I was then upset and disappointed when they didn't meet my expectations and at first I felt like that would that was on them you know like why were they not just getting this why is this not but it was all on me and I realized very quickly if you don't from day one set those boundaries, set his expectations, then you will end up disappointed and you will end up having to have a difficult conversation, which is way more difficult than that first conversation if you just did it from day one. So that has been the biggest learning. And I think the difficulties have came because I haven't done that. And I've ended up in a situation where I've had to have very difficult conversations when people have let me down or disappointed or something has went wrong because of that. Do you have any tips for how to have a difficult conversation? Oh, there was, there was a framework I was using for a while. I think it's something like, (laughs) I was reading about this. I think I can't remember the book at all, but it was about, so say something goes really wrong and you need to pull someone up about something. It's about explaining what exactly happened. So just saying out loud, you know, what that person did, how it made you feel, and what is the action that they could do the next time? And so, being very clear about what happened. So, I saw you said this to so and so. That made me feel that you maybe were being quite aggressive, and or that's just a scenario. And then next time, if you feel that way, maybe talk it out with me. Maybe take a you know ten minute break and don't straight away talk to that person. Or and trying to give it really tangible so that they know what they did. And how it made people feel. And then they've got something to act on it. Because um, that's all you can really do. And also at times with running a business, there are moments where you're very tired and you're very stressed and you're very emotional. And I think it's better for everybody that you don't make decisions on those feelings, that you take some time. I think when you're running a business, there's, there's this illusion that everything has to be done now. There's an illusion of an urgency because it's so busy and you want to get everything out. But I try not make decisions when I feel at my lowest point. I feel like they are never a good time to sort of make any actions. Or, and so yeah, getting that time to step away, to rest, and to know that you know what we're doing, we're not saving lives, right? We're not doing heart <laughs> heart surgery. It can wait if it's not the right timing. If you're not in a good place, everything can always wait. And so it's just taking away that illusion that everything has to happen now and that there's urgency around it. You can always take time to breathe and to get away from the situation and calm down because it does it can really consume you. And I think that's a real trap that a lot of people get in. And that's how relationships can fall apart if you act on those emotions and you don't take that time to really come back to yourself. Um, and I think at Cold Girl, we have been very good at that, like recognising when things are getting up to a really high stress point and finding time to go away and be like, okay, let's just go out for a long lunch and we'll sit and chat about things that are not work. <laughs> um, and yeah. It's not easy, but you you realize like that's the best thing you can do in those points.
0: So that personal awareness of actually what's going on for me when I'm kind of emotionally hooked or, you know, like you said, recognizing I'm tired and when I'm tired, I'm not in my best frame of mind. You know, the studies show that our brain actually, the function of our brain is compromised when we're tired and when we haven't had enough sleep or when we're extremely stressed. You know, that executive function of our brain for rational decision-making actually goes completely offline. So it makes that really difficult. Um, There's a really good book called Fierce Conversations by a woman called Susan Scott. That's really helpful. (laughs) That's really helpful. She has a really good framework in that. But what I would also say is some of the learnings that I've had in some of my trainings, the opening to a hard conversation can also be and I learned this from Brene Brown in her Rising Strong work, is acknowledging that what's going on is a story that you're making up about what's happened and starting and opening a conversation by saying, the story I'm making up about this is. And so it's a really great way because it doesn't say that it's the truth, and it invites somebody else's perspective on the conversation about what their story is, and um, that has yeah. been super helpful <laughs> in marriages, in <laughs> in relationships. <laughs> um, but it's just a little bit more, like in addition to the things that you were talking about in that framework. That those words, the story I'm making up about this, is just seems to be it's not defensive and it's not aggressive. It's just like this, yeah, this yeah, is this yeah, is sort like of that. what's playing out. Anyway. So that's a little, little <laughs> in fact, the other way. But um, the work that you do is incredible in terms of its potential to really impact girls' lives and women's lives um, in an area that you said, as you mentioned, can change the trajectory of their lives. What have been some of your most rewarding moments to date?
1: It's so hard. This has been, the whole thing has been very rewarding, but there's been moments where there was this little ghetto. And she came to, she's actually came to so many workshops and code camps now, but after the first one, um, she went home to her mum and she said, mum, I didn't know there were other girls like me. And for me, that was huge. That just was exactly what we started this for. There's little girls who are really into STEM, really into science, technology and engineering maths, but they might be a minority at their school. And we all remember what it's like being at school. You want to fit in. You don't want to be an outsider. And so there's a lot of cultural stigma around technology and science fields. And you know, girls aren't supposed to like maths and stuff like that. And it's when they do, they feel them I feel them like we're losing them. And so being able to create an environment where it normalizes it. And these girls can meet each other and look at one another and say, yeah this is cool like yeah there is other girls that like this I'm not alone anymore and I don't feel so weird about who I am and I think for me that is the most rewarding thing about what we do is that I feel like we're giving hope back into these girls future and that they have this space where they feel that sense of belonging and I love that like that was probably one of the most rewarding things about some. Of our work. So, what's your big vision? What would you
0: love to see happen? You know, if if you can have your hands on the wheel of, of driving change, what would you love to see from from schools, from communities, from other businesses?
1: Big vision is that I'd, I'd love teachers to be more prepared. Like I'd love to give them what they need to get more prepared in terms of teaching the digital curriculum. I know that there is a huge a huge burden on them to really upskill to teach this new curriculum. But it's not as easy as just changing a curriculum and giving it to teachers. Um, They don't feel confident. They do feel underprepared. And so I wish that I could give them more to make them feel more confident to be able to teach technology. I want it to be mandatory from primary school. I think that kids from as young as five years old should be learning about computational thinking. I imagine a world where everybody can code, just like we can all write or we can all read and I want to live in that world because currently technology is being built by one gender and that's not good enough and I don't want to live in that future either particularly as we we go into artificial intelligence and machine learning if it's one person with one perspective and one way of thinking that's building and teaching these computers I don't know what that's going to end up in terms of how well technology will serve our society a small even example of what that could be is the Apple Watch, this is something that came out that was supposed to track you know, your health, your footsteps, your sleep analysis, you name it, You know, your health concerns are covered. But on the first launch of that product, they missed out a menstruation tracker. And that's a really important thing to women. Every day my hormones change. Every day I feel different. And I want to know more about my body and who I am. But if we don't have enough diverse people building and creating technology we're always going to be forgotten about. We're always going to be missed out. Something's going to be missed out because we don't have those people on the team. And so my vision is an equal society, equally building and creating the future. And how we go about that logistics of making that happen is so complex, but it's something that I'm willing to have a go at. You know, it's something that I'm willing to help contribute to and have a, you know, chip away at it slowly and surely. Because I imagine like, all the ideas that is in everyone's heads, doctors of the world who maybe have an idea for an app, but don't have the skills or the funds to kind of just build it or people in different other industries who have noticed, you know, a niche or a product idea, but they, again, they don't have those native skills to just build it and make it happen and put together an NDP. And so I want to live in a world where everybody's empowered to create technology based on their experiences, their backgrounds. I'm tired of seeing Uber apps and pizza delivery and laundry services. What about problems that actually matter and people who face real adversity in life? Imagine the products that they can bring and the problems they can solve if they had those skills. And so, yeah, that's, that's the big vision. eco creators and building the future. Where can people find out more about what you do, Ellie? um so they can find out through our website which is codelichagirl.org um we regularly update our social media so we're across linkedin instagram facebook and twitter and our handle is Um so it's just au at the end of it and yeah you can reach out to us on linkedin or whatever I don't mean
0: (laughs) Because if people don't want to actually get their hands dirty with learning code after speaking to you, I don't know what we could do to get people um, more engaged because the biases that you talk about and the the digital exclusion that you talk about are only things that will become more ingrained and wider and bigger unless we actually address them and call them out and have people, like you say, of diverse backgrounds, you know, with those tools in their hands to be able to create new things that we need that are not being, dealt, you know, adequately provided for. So um, I could stay and chat with you all day, but I'm aware that we need to start wrapping this conversation up.
1: Um, so what what three things would you like people to take away from our chat today? Well, one of the things, Kaylee, that really inspired me to start a business was meeting someone like you. And the first time I met you was on a female finder's panel. And I think you really gave me the confidence to start my own business because you were very relatable. The advice you gave was really tangible. And so I hope that one of the things that people have taken away from this podcast is that, you know, you can do it too. And there is a lot of frameworks that you can use to really sort of guide you through starting your own business or dealing with situations that don't come naturally. For me, I've never been a natural leader and I've never felt that I would be a great CEO because I was introverted and I am very soft-spoken and sometimes you see someone who starts a business or owns a business or runs a business and they they don't look like you and they don't sound like you and they don't act like you and I think what I want people to know is you don't have to fit the mold that if you're passionate about something your passion will, will ignite others to help and you'll build great teams and that vision will kind of take you forward and so that's kind of, it's not three things, but it's one sort of big thing that I hope people get away from this chat.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. So thank you for the wisdom that you've shared with us today. We're going to wrap up with our 10 by 10. So are you ready to, you ready to roll to finish off on a high? So we (laughs) have 10 questions, um, 10 seconds for each answer fast and furious to wrap us up and bring us home. Are you ready to roll? I think I'm ready. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Ali, what I like about myself is?
1: That I challenge gender stereotypes. I beat procrastination by? Setting rules and setting boundaries. A song on my life soundtrack is? A band called Frightened Rabbit and their song Head Rolls Off. We'll have to look that one up. Um, The world needs more... Girls building and creating technology. Amen. A phrase I live by is? So this is actually the lyrics of that song I just mentioned, but it's whilst I'm alive, I'll make tiny changes to air. Something everyone must do is? Learn to love yourself. A book that changed me is? Wild by Cheryl Strait. <laughs> I love that book. Fear and I... Oh, this one I got a little bit stuck at, but I think the only way to beat fear is through experience. Something
0: that always makes me feel good is... Camping and nature walks. Away from a screen. Yes.
1: (laughs) Wonder where the Wi-Fi is weak. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, my legacy will be... Hopefully inspiring a new and diverse generation of new technologists. Ali Watson, founder of Code Like a Girl, thank you so much for
0: your time and speaking with us and sharing your wisdom and for the work you do in definitely making a big impact on getting more girls into coding and creating a more equal digital world. So thank you so much and we're going to wrap it up there. No problem. Thank you so much, Kaylee. That's all for this episode of In The Company. I hope you've enjoyed listening and tucked away a few gems to bring to your working life. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to our channel. And if you've loved what you've heard today, please share it with your kinfolk who might also be in the need of some good company. And if you feel so inclined, we'd be super grateful for our review on iTunes.